What up, folks? This is Leroy Barber with the Sit Up Podcast. And guess what? It is summertime, you know? Uh, yeah. Now, I'm from Philly, so uh, summertime, I, I connect with Will Smith's song, right? Summer, summertime, sit back and unwind, you know what I'm talking about? So um, just want to wanna tee up the summer. Uh, and as we uh, get to our relaxed mode, uh, Sit Up Podcast is going to take a little little summer break as well. Now, it's not going to change our content. There'll still be some content coming forward for you every week, uh, but we're not going to do a whole lot of live shows this summer. Uh, we'll, we'll do a couple, but uh, not a ton of those. You'll, you will still hear new stuff. Uh, we got some Jose Humphreys coming. We got an uh, interview with my wife, Donna Barber, coming. Uh, we Some stuff left over from Inhabit and the voices in our travel. So summertime will be this relaxed time for the Sit Up podcast. But I do have some questions about summer. Uh, you know, I always got questions. What's a cookout and barbecue to you, right? What does that look like? You're going you're gonna to have some barbecue, some cookout this summer. How's that? How's that gonna how's that gonna go over, right? I don't know. You like do you like uh your pulled pork, right? Or do you like yours barbecued with the bone on, right off the grill, slap the sauce on Now you know our producer, Andrew Morgan, he's from he's from Kansas City, so he's a little bit snobby about this barbecue thing. He got a whole process, right? So uh, we should we should do a show where he's just talking about how he prepares his barbecue, because he'll go on for about 30 minutes about that thing. Um, so here in PDX, we got something called Good in the Hood, right? Where uh, we go down and there's a festival and everybody come out. Uh, there's some music, doing some old school stuff. Uh, so what what kind of festivals are happening in your city this summer? What what you gonna get out to? How you gonna how you gonna celebrate the summer and unwind? You know, some folks go camping. Now I know. Camping's, a, you know, that's a, some people camp, some people don't. You know, I know I got some black folks listening and going, we ain't going no camping, right? Uh, I know, I know. But some people are going to go camping. I think I'm going to take my kids camp. Some of y'all, all y'all don't know me, but I, I, I'm I, cool with an RV rolling out and get some camping done. So that's me. Uh, doors open, you open up the doors, right? You kind of let some of that hot air in. People kind of hanging out on on the stoop, right? If you're from Philly, you're hanging out on on the steps. You're from Baltimore, you're sitting on the stoop, right? Uh, I, I get. I don't know what they do in LA. I'm not a West Coast guy, but I'm telling you, East Coast, we out and about in the summertime, hanging hanging in the streets. Uh, schools out. Kids are kids are either at the house all day, right? Now nowadays, kids are in their video games, right? Uh, but when I was a kid. Uh, we hung out all day long. We got up in the morning. We were outside playing football, getting all sweaty. Matter of fact, I don't know. This will tell you how old I am. My mom, my mom, we'd come in the house in the summer to eat. She'd be like, y'all smell fresh. Y'all smell like outside. I, I don't know what that means, but that's an old school Southern thing about the summer. Um, yeah, and and some people take a break from church in the summer. I Now, my mom, there was no such thing as a church break, right? But 
the church attendance in the summertime drops off. People don't go to church uh, in certain places. And that's that probably that's a cool topic to talk about. Like, is that a cultural thing or is that all churches, right? Do some do 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 white churches fall off more than churches of color in the summer? I wonder. We should we should maybe take some surveys. We we should throw a survey up and uh and see see what happens with church attendance in your church based on some cultural stuff. Um, and um, the church I grew up in, there was, there was vacation Bible school. So I know uh, even if you didn't go to church, like vacation Bible school, churches kind of do it up in the summer. I, I'd like to see that thing like, like, you know, brought up the speed a little bit more, like, like cont- bring into some contemporary versions. Maybe y'all, your church should do like, a church block festival for five nights, right? Get stuff out in the street, some barbecue stuff, close off the street and just have some block parties every night uh, and have the church get to know the community that way. That, that would be cool. That's, that's for free for y'all churches that don't, don't know what to do in the summer, but it's summertime y'all. Uh, and the sit up podcast is going to take a break. Uh, content will still come at you every week or every other week. Still listen in and catch up if you need to start from the beginning and listen to us all over again at sit up podcast. This is Leroy Barber. You can reach us on Facebook, uh, at sit up podcast. You can get me at Leroy Barber on my Twitter. You can get me on my Facebook. You can get me on my Instagram, leave some messages this summer. I'd love to get back to you. We'll do a couple live shows just to keep it fresh, but y'all have a good summer out there. Let's begin. 10 minutes ago, you weren't looking at me this way. And now you're looking at me like some wounded puppy that you need to help or save. And I don't know why you're looking at me this way. And I'm shocked at the fact that I'm way back here and I'm in pain. And why are you sorry for me? And I don't need your help or your sympathy or your pity or, and, and that really, that's when it really hit me that, wow, people see or hear about a POC and they think all of these things that I really maybe don't identify with. And what being a POC is to me, being a woman of color is to me, is not at all what people might make that experience out to be either. Let's begin. Blank paper and pen. Stories to tell. Battles to win. Deep breath and count to ten. Let's begin. Let's begin. Let's begin. Let's begin. Welcome into the Sit Up Podcast. I am your producer, Andrew Morgan. And of course, you just heard Leroy Barber. And of course, he teased out some great questions. And I always want you guys to remember what Sit Up stands for. It's sports, innovation, theology, the you, which is ugly, not calling you ugly, but the ugly, the injustice of the world. And of course, public discourse. We always want to hear from you. OK, now today, I feel like we have a guest that kind of fits into a little bit of the innovation category, maybe we don't know, could be theology or some other things, but I'm gonna let you introduce yourself. How are you doing today? Good. I'm doing really good. Thank you. My name is Raquel Polanco and I identify as Hispanic American Latinx woman of color. So let's start there real quick. What is Latin? Like, is this is a term for me who I just moved out of the Midwest, right? I was in Oklahoma. And I never heard this term until I moved uh, to the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. So give me a little bit of background on what does it mean to be Latinx? Yeah. So the X essentially stands for um, with the term Latino, Latina, you have that um, 
the term is gendered, whether you have the O at the N for the masculine or the A for the feminine. Um, so what Latinx does is essentially incorporate the holistic community, the full body, um, and, and it's just a, a gender neutral term. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. See, now that, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See, because at first I was yeah. like, am I offending people yeah. by not using this term? No, okay. not at all. It's actually really new to me as well. I... It really became from because I would hear it and I actually thought people were like mispronouncing or saying something else or this was a new movement um, because I've always identified as Latina and thought that was just fine. Um, but I what I do appreciate about the term and why I use it is because it's so holistic and inclusive of the entire community. But I don't think it's yeah wrong not to or to say it. Yeah, man, that's, yeah. Good. that's good. So <laughs> yeah. with your relationship with with poetry or, or the spoken word. Like what? How did you get into that? Like you? Yeah, I I've always been writing for as long as I can remember. Um, a lot of it was just growing up in a family where I was very much deemed the emotional one, and feeling like I didn't often have a space to process what was going on um, without fear of being called dramatic or sensitive or emotional. So a lot of times, growing up when I was in deep pain or um, great elation, whatever the feeling was, I would go to my room and write. That was just the outlet. That was where mm. I can process all my feelings, all my thoughts. Um, and there's no judgment from the paper or the pen. Um, and, and so that's that's how I became be, began writing. And then around 11 or 12, I started performing just in different venues wherever I got asked um, and I've I've been doing that ever since and so I can't actually remember like the first time or anything like that but I just been doing it since a very young age because for me it's uh, sometimes I feel like I, I really struggle actually in conversations with people expressing myself or my true feelings um, but in poetry I sort of get to do that and I have that avenue um, and I'm able to convey my thoughts a whole lot better and a whole lot less emotionally and a whole lot more honestly, which is the true beauty of it. Um, so, yeah, it's just a form of self-expression that I took to at a very early age. Tell me a little bit about like about that family dynamic. You, you had mentioned earlier, like the makeup of your family, like your mother and father. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've heard anything about the Enneagram, but I um, identify as a type four, which is called the romantic, the artist, the individualist. And I very much in my family uh, was always after um, the fantasy of things and the true authenticity of things. And I wanted to have deep conversations. And I always identified as an empath in my life. Like I'm able to really be attuned to the feelings of others. And I'm very sensitive to the, the pain of the world and also the beauty. Um, and with my family, especially like my, my dad, my sisters, they tend to be very um, happy-go-lucky, let's not let's not have a fight let's just yeah. enjoy each other and my mom always trying to keep the peace and my older sister wanting to stay out of things um and me like just let's just cry and talk about it and be honest and not really having that space in my family and i think things have gotten better as i've aged and we've all just kind of grown up and had like growth and healing but um yeah as a as a younger child I definitely was the only one feeling a lot of feelings and and I'm sure they were too but just handled it differently and masked it in different ways and um so that dynamic was was interesting for sure so what was the cultural experience yeah um oh that's a really good question um 
So I grew up in Anchorage, Alaska, and my dad is Dominican, and my mom is from Honduras. And people don't think that Alaska is diverse at all, but it's really diverse. And I didn't experience being the minority until I moved to Portland and went to a predominantly <laughs> white school. Um, and people kept saying this thing like, oh, you're a minority, and how can we help you and support you in your journey here? And just putting on all these expectations about how I was somehow disadvantaged or needed some sort of special assistance to get along. And I remember that being such a culture shock and experiencing racial battle fatigue and being very confused because I grew up in a home where we were so deeply empowered to believe that we could do anything, to believe that the color of our skin was a good thing, that we were bilingual was an advantage, that we had agency through being who we were. Um, and so at the age of 23, moving to Portland and experience that the other side of that dichotomy, I was very um, shocked by it because I grew up in a church that we do church in Spanish. It's a Hispanic church. My parents pastor. It is multicultural. Um, any any Spanish country, you name it, is represented at my church. And I went to a high school that was so diverse. And so coming from that and being told my whole life um, embrace being Hispanic, love our language, love our food. We spoke Spanish in the house. It's my first language. We ate so much good food. And my, and my dad being Caribbean and my mom being from Central America both brought in so much flavor. And I mean, even just simple things like different ways of cooking the plantain, which is a game changer. And so in those ways, very much being super proud of where I came from and super aware of where we came from and everything always being talked about in terms of culture. Like our parents always saying, in our culture, this is how we do things. This is why we are the way that we are. And and, and those traditions just being pushed forward, I think that is so um I think it's very present in a lot of cultures. Um, and so growing up in America, but being Hispanic, I remember our house had this essence in which I knew, okay, I'm born in America and we live in America, but I'm very much being raised on Hispanic values. And um, yeah, th that's how we function in this household, being very aware of that. So what was one of the first times the outside world pushed in their agenda and let you know that you were other or you weren't? like everyone else or what they what they want mm -hmm. yeah I mean I think I started becoming aware of it at the age of 18 when I turned 18 and my dad looked me in the eyes and was like just so you know this means nothing like you're not an adult uh that's not our culture and my friends suddenly always being like oh you sh you can do this thing you're an adult yeah. um you don't need why are you still like listening to these things that your parents are putting on you and I just very much felt like I can't not listen to them I can't go against my culture I can't um, that's when I became very aware of the fact that um, American culture was pushing on this identity that I didn't feel like I could step into because it very much went against the culture and the identity that my parents had cultivated uh, and then it was when I moved to college that people were like oh you're a minority um we're trying to create programming for students of color to feel supported and things like that. And this privilege walk that we did at my university, it was one of our initiatives. And um, through the privilege walk, I realized that I ended up very much on the, on the back end of the spectrum. And I remember being so shocked that day, brought to the point of tears because I didn't feel that where I was on the spectrum visually was where I felt internally. My parents raised us so empowered that 
I was like, I don't feel this disadvantage. I don't feel this underprivileged, whatever that means. And that the people in that walk with us that were more privileged were looking at me with tears in their eyes, which was the most painful thing because I was just like, 10 minutes ago, you weren't looking at me this way. And now you're looking at me like some wounded puppy that you need to help or save. And I don't know why you're looking at me this way. And I'm shocked at the fact that I'm way back here and I'm in pain. And why are you sorry for me? And I don't need your help or your sympathy or your pity or, and, and that really, that's when it really hit me that, wow, people see or hear about a POC and they think all of these things that I really maybe don't identify with. And what being a POC is to me, being a woman of color is to me, is not at all what people might make that experience out to be either. Yeah. So what is what's what's one of your and you kind of you may have already answered this, but I'm really wondering what are some of your biggest challenges? Yeah, um, the intersectionality of it all, for sure. Um, I. Like I said, before moving to Portland and Multnomah, I was not fully aware of the color of my skin in the way that I am now. I it, I was like, okay, I'm brown, you know, I'm Latina, it's cool. And I loved it. Um, but then moving into a space where I was thinking about the color of my skin on a daily basis and being fully aware of the, the environments I was walking into, being aware of my hair and how big it is, or is this style almost too ethnic or too are they even gonna get it um i remember when i started wearing head wraps and people just being shook by that and i just was like wanting to put myself away because i felt like me being me is just drawing attention um and so i think um and so thinking about the color of my skin was one thing, but then on top of that thinking about gender um i ran for student body president and it occurred to me that I was the first uh, woman of color in that position at my university and all the challenges that came with that it had not occurred to me when I ran. So being at a school that's predominantly white where before me most of the student body presidents had been white males, um, I think there was one female before me um, and then there was me and having to go against challenges of not only being female and having to prove that I I have the right to embody this space. I am intelligent enough. I am professional enough. I am creative enough. I am authoritative enough. All of those things. And then also being a person of color and having to, again, once again, prove, um, yeah, I've earned the right to be in this space. And so thinking about things like that, the intersectionality has definitely been um, a a central focus as, as I've been wrestling through a lot of things that deal with yeah, my identity and how I um, hold space for myself in in places where I am minimized or simplified yeah. or exotified. Um, yeah, and just being fully aware of all of these different intersections, um, sexuality, gender, race, religion, um, being Pentecostal in a, in a Baptist school, <laughs> uh, and being very aware of how all those things relate um, and how they deem challenges all their own. So what's What's the fight? Like, what's the next big thing? Like, what are you looking forward to being a part of? What's the movement that you're saying, okay, I've got to lend my voice to, I've got to keep fighting. What's what's next? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's really interesting because at school I focused a lot on, um, 
cultural fights and um, even even gender towards the end. We really focused on gender and sexuality. Um, but what I've realized in all of this and what really links this all together for me and in my own head and heart um, is just connectedness and relationships. And I'm really interested in looking more into things like attachment theory and social philosophy and how we how the individual relates to others within the collective because I think that what's at the core of all of this is it's yes important to understand cultural differences and gender and power dynamics and these structures but what's at the root of all of this is woundedness is deep deep woundedness and I believe that the answers are in the collective and so we need each other's voices we need to hear one another we need to deeply listen um, and I think that the mending of our wounds comes from how we relate, how we connect, um, which I don't think we do a good job if we haven't self-identified what are our wounds, what are what are my uh, boundaries with attaching and how do I bond with others and things like that. And so for me, I'm interested in looking at all of these um, things with restorative justice from the angle of attachment and wounds and personal um Psych yeah, psychology and things like that. And so looking at the social context through the lens of the individual and our own individual brokenness and woundedness is where I'm coming from. So as opposed to looking big picture, oh, gender, that's a big theme or sexuality or culture. I just want to just come right to the individual and say, OK, who are we? Where are we at? And, and where are we coming at this from? Yeah. Good. So I got two more questions, mm -hmm. uh, one being I know you have poetry and and other things, but what are what has what has been one of the things in your life that you would want to share that's been a healer that's helped you kind of get beyond it? Because you mentioned something that a lot of people it hit when it hits them they don't know how to process it. Mm -hmm. Earlier you said, you know you you've had to deal with the like sort of like the battle fatigue, mm -hmm. and how do you cope with that? How do you like what are some of your healing some of the things that brings you healing? Yeah. Um, wow. That's a really good question. I think um, something that has really helped lately and what I've incorporated, especially in this last year, um, Sabbathing has been remarkable in my life, remembering to create margin in my life to breathe, to take space for myself, to connect with God, to reimagine relationships, um, and in that space, um, meditation, essentially, and which is an act that you can do every single day. Um, but meditation has helped profoundly because I think for a long time, like what happens with most of us, I got angry. I got yeah. really angry. And uh, I had a professor who, with such wisdom and love, just would deeply convict that in me and saying, you know, you can't be in this fight you can't be helpful or participate fully with with all that anger um and so meditation has really helped me to again with the fatigue and the resentment and the bitterness um to let go of a lot of that and to understand like abraham heschel says we are not all guilty but we are all responsible to understand that we are all deeply complicit in a system that most of us are angry with and and identifying my complicity and so what these spaces sabbathing meditation prayer 
has really done is to allow me to take care of myself is allow me to not only do the victim thing and throw pity parties all the time and say oh this happened and I'm angry and I'm so upset but also see where else have I done this and a lot of forgiveness um which truly truly like people say it you know forgiveness is for yourself and and that's what I've had to do is really identify the places in which where do I need to let go of this not because it's for them but because me storing it is really creating a bitter root to take place here and I'm angry and I'm bitter um and so that has really really helped a lot of um my healing and like moving forward is allowing allowing a space for meditation and and memory so I can remember things rightfully and remember them fully and remember them correctly and then move forward into a place of healing through that so that the past isn't protruding on my present and reminding me of or triggering me um, but rather that I, I'm able to find a place of deepest acceptance and then from there forgive heal and grow. Mm-hmm. So last question I want you to give share your wisdom because I feel like you have that I want you to share your wisdom with a particular demographic. And I'm, I'm being really specific to, I want you to share what wisdom and advice you have with the young ladies who may have been in that privileged circle. So mm. what would you say, what, what advice do you have for them? It's just life advice to just make them yeah. a, a better person. Yeah. Mm. Don't cry. <laughs> I think uh, what I would say to those young ladies, to those people in that in that space with me would be simply to look at everyone um, with brand new eyes in the sense that what you know or what you've heard or what you've even experience through a genuine encounter with one person may not be the lens through which you need to interact with other people, even other people of that group or or of an out group, but um, looking at everyone as an individual, as a holistic person um, who has their own story, their own background, their own wound, their own fears and desires and hopes and dreams, et cetera, um, and allowing that person the space to self-identify, to um, tell you their story, and to really share, because I think that what we do is we attach stories to people who have not identified with that. I think about um, Chimamanda Adichie and her TED Talk, where she talks about um, the danger of a single story, and she says the problem with a single story is not that, or with stereotypes, is not that they are wrong but that they make one story the only story and I think that's what I was feeling in that room is that okay you know my parents immigrated or you know you know this one detail about my life and now you have attached a whole story or a whole thought a whole stereotype to it and that's not even my story Um, and so I think that's why I would say look at everyone with with fresh brand new eyes and allowing people the space to tell their stories to be their own person and to really self-identify and and by that self-identification I mean for example, my dad being Dominican and my mom Honduran, I, I'm brown and I have really curly hair and I, and I have thick hair and a lot of people assume that I'm African-American. And when I tell them I'm Hispanic, some people will be like, oh, you're Dominican, so, you, so you're black. Oh, so you're Afro-Latina. And me personally thinking, I don't know if I've ever used these terms to self-identify. Right. And so really allowing me to say, no, this is, this is what I identify as and giving people that space. Um, 
to be is so refreshing. And I think it, it allows us all to take a deep breath in, in the embodiment of who we are. Well, thank you for finding your story, sharing your story, and continuing to just be you. So, then thank you for joining us on the Sit Up Podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Listen, and let's be clear. You only get one chance, one opportunity, one request to appear, one moment to consider what you might hold dear, a few seconds to digest what might be coming near, a quick check of which direction you may want to steer. Maybe God is pro-choice. He gave each of us a will a mind, a voice, and whether we will make statements, speak truth, or add to the noise is up to us to take the dust we've been given, to treat our seconds like cents and watch how we spend them, to use our words like olive branches in the mouths of birds and watch where we send them, take the negative thoughts we were taught, take our wounded souls and hearts, and let God mend them. Let's begin. Blank paper and pen, stories to tell, battles to win, deep breath and count to ten. Let's begin. Let's begin. You were doing a spoken word piece. Tell me a little bit about, one, the piece that you you did. Yeah, um, that's a great question. So I studied at Multnomah University, and I was an English major, and we we had this class titled Minority Voices in Literature, in which our professor essentially chose for this specific season of the class um, to focus on Hispanic American writers. And in that class, I was introduced to so many voices that were quite similar to mine, Mexican American, Dominican American writers, um, queer Hispanic voices. And I was deeply enlightened and it was so um, salvific and healing for me to be in an academic setting hearing from writers like this that sounded like me, had similar experiences, came from similar backgrounds. Uh, And in that class, we read a book called Borderlands by Gloria Anzaldúa, who um, is a Texan, Mexican, American um, female. She is Latina. She is queer. She is incredible. And she in in that book, Borderlands, where she says she grew she grew up on the borderland and her existence was that of an open wound where one life uh, grates against another life and both life bleeds. She talks about these three images, which is the title of my poem. Um, And the images are a corn, a cactus and a turtle. And she says that as people of color, um, these three images really represent or embody our being and the the corn is how we are husked in our culture Mm -hmm. and the turtle is how we carry our home our origin on our back everywhere we go and the cactus is sort of this hardening experience that happens to people of color when you are subjected to so much um, pain trauma vulnerability Mm. and how we sort of harden on the exterior um So anyways, through that book, I just, she provided so much language for me and it was an incredible experience reading that and having the language. And so from that, for my final project in the class, I created these um, collages of sorts and it occurred to me that if people saw them, they might not understand. So I was like, let me type something up for my professor in the class so that they understand what these pieces are about and these three images, the cactus, the corn, and the turtle. And from that was birthed that spoken word poem. It wasn't intended to be a poem. I just was <laughs> like, let me just explain to them what I'm thinking. Um, and so that's where the food metaphor came from, the corn. And then the beauty aspect and the hardening of women of color, which is the cactus, um, which is also in the piece. And then carrying home on our back and that origin, that mother, father, having these conversations and how we carry that. Um, So that's how the poem was birthed, essentially. Um. Sometimes we take our culture in by the spoonful. Some bites easier to swallow than others. 
but we chew nonetheless for the reminder that there is still something to take in, some richness to taste, some history to thank, some rhythm, some flavor, some traditional pattern of hand movements and ingredients passed down from Abuela's kitchen, something to hold on to. Sometimes we take our culture in by the mouthful, too much to wrap our head and hearts around so we open our mouths wide and try to take in as much memory as our native tongue will allow. In one single breath, we pass down story after story of who we are and where we come from and what we eat and how we dance because ours is a culture of ancient oral tradition and every spoonful counts. So whether it is shout or song or el sancocho de mama, we try not to let it get away from us. We open our mouths wide as if every bit of our existence was dependent on this feeding, on this knowledge, on this feeding of our knowledge. Sometimes we take our culture in by the mouthful to be reminded that this bread and spoonful from mama is the substance of life. And sometimes we will fill you up with so much platano and tortilla in your veins that you will identify this as your lifeline, your bloodline, your blood type. L for Latina positive. No matter what they say, when you walk out those doors, there is nothing negative about you. So here, eat your food and try to hold in as much steam as you can. Never let the heat make you bitter. Never let the hate make you angry. Don't bite your tongue on swallowed pride. Instead, wear that pride in your hair like flowers from El Campo so that they never forget that even though we get our heritage passed down to us in fragments, there is nothing fragmented about us. And even though we get our history retold to us in pieces, there is nothing broken about where we come from. And even though we have to sit and wait for mama and papa to feed us our collective identity by the spoonful. There is nothing tasteless about us. A good meal takes time, and a good understanding of where we come from does as well. So I will not rush Papa when he tells me about los mayas and los incas, los taínos con sus fincas. I will not rush Mama when she looks me in the eye on the first day of every school year to remind me that I am beautiful, that there is a place for me, that I am not merely pretty for a brown-skinned girl, that I am gorgeous even when I am not their standard of straight-haired, blue-eyed beauty, that I am more than a foreign form of attractive or an exotic type of beauty, that I am more than just different, pretty. So I will not rush Mama when she tries to force open a space for me in society because someday I will need that space and I will stand in the headspace between really good food and not good enough identity and I will be grateful that my mom took her time with me, that she took her time every time she brushed every bit of doubt and every ounce of insecurity and every chance of confusion that caught itself on these tightly coiled curls. I will be grateful because she taught me and by 
Rabbi taught me not to tear myself. They taught me to embrace parts of myself that the world would teach me to hate. They taught me not to hate parts of myself that I would be told to despise. They taught me not to tear myself from a culture, from a race, from a religion, from a language, from a history, a heritage, an inheritance. They taught me not to tear myself from an inheritance of darkness and dance, midnight, magic of golden beauty and natural hair. They taught me not to tear myself, not to crucify these curls that make up my crown, not to resent the melanin that swims in my skin, not to curse the full moon midnight that dwells in my eyes. They taught me not to tear myself. Mastica, mija, my mom would say, you have to learn to eat, to take whatever they put on the table for you and find the nutritional value in everything. And if you don't like something, articulate it well without an accent in your mouth or salsa and chile still hidden underneath the breath of your untamed tongue. Mija, papa would say, when you speak, make us proud. For ours is a culture of open wounds that we cannot surgically attend to publicly. So when you speak, make sure it sounds like healing and feels like nurture and tastes like hope. Make sure you open up more doors than you close and when they shut you out because you are more alien than ally, make sure you identify all the possible worlds within the wound first and that you treat every wall they build against you like it is Jericho and not border. You can always march around and give God time. But never stop believing, because believing we overcome is what makes us overcome. So that gracias to the hands that feed you and always, mija, pray before you eat. Thank you.